Hi everyone, this is the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and you're listening to episode 34. Today's guest is Bangladeshi American music producer Jai Wolf. You probably have heard his classic song Indian Summer. He's performed all around the world including Coachella and in 2019 he released his album called The Cure to Loneliness. It's very rare to see a successful South Asian face in the music industry so this episode is definitely a treat. Before we get started, if you're enjoying the podcast and you're enjoying the Instagram feed and you want to help out and you want to support, consider being a patron. Just visit Brown podcast.com and whatever you decide to contribute will go a long long way thank you so much for listening let's get started thank you so much it's really cool that you guys are you know meeting me here and and doing this podcast with me yeah no problem my pleasure i guess usually when i i start with people i usually go back to their parents and to their roots from all the way back there the origin story right yeah and i understand you're you're uh, from bangladesh your parents are from bangladesh and yeah. you moved to the states when you were young. Yeah. So tell me about your parents and and where 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 are they rooted from? Where did they grow up and how did they end up yeah. meeting each other? So my parents are from Bangladesh, and I would say that their childhood was definitely a little defined by the war with Pakistan and in the seventies, mm-hmm. because they were born in the sixties. So my dad was like a refugee in India when he was younger. My my mom like went lived through that war when she was younger. But they both managed to survive and our families kind of like, you know, I would say they were like maybe middle class in Bangladesh. They weren't like super poor or anything, but they also weren't wealthy at all. Um, my dad, um, my dad's father, so my grandfather really encouraged all his children to become very educated. So right. he, he went to get um, his master's degree and then went, went on to get his PhD. Um, and same with my mom. My mom is a family of three sisters so and but her dad was very progressive and like wanted her to go to school and everything so my mom also went to get her master's so the way my parents met is my dad was a physics teacher at i think rajshahi university he didn't go to this is not india this is bangladesh bangladesh yeah sorry so he was a refugee in india during the war and then came back to bangladesh and you know okay there so he left and Um, he came back left and came back yeah and my grandfather my mom's dad was also a teacher at Russia University. He was a chemistry teacher. Oh, wow. My, my dad was teaching physics. It's and a family of teachers. Yeah, yeah. A lot of lot of educators in my family, actually. And so that's how they met, because my grandfather was like, hey, you should meet my daughter. Um, she's very smart. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it was funny, actually, it wasn't even arranged. It was more like a meeting, because my my I would say my parents were the first in our families that didn't get a very traditional arranged marriage. It was like, the, you know, it was through an introduction, but they actually really liked each other. And then, you know, this in the they got married in 1990. I was born in 91. So she was, was down right away. She was like, I'm I'm in. Yeah, they. I think they liked each other. It was like, a, seemed real, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. <laughs> right. And then right. um, um, my dad um, got an opportunity to do his PhD in America. And my uncle, who's his older brother, was the one who was like, you need to like leave Bangladesh, like find a new life outside of there. So my uncle went to Sweden to become a doctor. Mm. Um, And he was really pushing my dad and his siblings to immigrate. So what actually ended up happening is my dad was the only one in my family to immigrate to America. And to this day, the only one in America. So he is first in his family. Then my mom followed with me. And when my mom came... I was a year old. It was in 1992. Um, and to clarify, I was born in Bangladesh. I was born in Bangladesh, came here when I was a year old. It was supposed to be a visit. It was like two weeks. Mm. Two weeks turned into five years. Five years turned into we're staying here. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. It was um, it was a big deal for them. You know, looking back, like to leave your whole family behind, all your friends, it's, it's a really, really big deal for immigrants to do that. Something you... It's hard to grasp that as a kid. My my thing when I was younger was like, oh, why didn't my aunts and uncles come here? Why did I don't have my cousins? How come I don't get to see my grandparents too often? Because flying back was you know it's quite expensive growing up in the nineties. Yeah. Um. So you know all that stuff definitely like ran through my head a lot growing up. Did you visit back a lot? Um, I've I've been back four times. I, I mean, went as a in, kid, as a as growing oh, up. As, no, once I went in ninety eight, and I was. Like nine years old? Seven, yeah, seven years old or something. Yeah. So I was born in 91. So I went in 90, 97, 98. I was really young, six or seven. 
And it was definitely mind blowing first time back. I was like, oh, this is this is Bangladesh, you know, and um, went back in 2006, went back in 2014. And the last time I went was 2017, right before my grandfather passed, went to go see him. Um, but yeah, that's the origin of how my parents came to America. That's amazing. And when your dad, it, it didn't seem like your dad had any family members here in America. Usually they no. follow a, a family member, but your dad, it seems yeah. like knew nobody, maybe some friends. So he came yeah. to America alone. That must have yeah. been a pretty terrifying experience for him. Yeah. My dad is a really smart guy. <laughs> like I, I think looking back, he is just, he's very much, uh, I know this is a bit of a problematic phrase, but I think it's the best way to describe it. It really was pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I know it's like conservative talking point and all that stuff, but it's the only way I can think of how he, he did it. He really, he just did it himself. You know, when Bangladeshi people come here, they usually find and seek out other Bangladeshi family friends and, and alumni members and stuff like that. So there's definitely a network, but my dad just like really figured it out on his own. Um, what did your dad do here? He was doing a, he was doing physics research. He was a researcher for a really long time. Um, but I would say my family story was not an overnight immigrant success story or anything like that. It's different for everyone. You know, you have, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I've met such a wide spectrum of immigrant families. And once you get to your teens, you start to realize that like the haves and haves not have nots and it, how it's a spectrum. And, you know, you would look to some friends and you'd, you'd realize, oh, they're a bit more wealthier than you are. But I ha- I've had family friends come to our place and they they think we were wealthy. It's such an interesting spectrum yeah. of, of relativity. I feel like for our, my parents, it took almost 30 years. I'd say 20 to 25 years before they finally settled down, got a house and all that stuff. Because we were originally in Illinois then we moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And then we moved to New York um, 17 years ago this year. And it wasn't until 2011, which is 20 years after immigrating, that my parents like finally got the house that they're now settled in. Um, And they also had to switch career paths. I mean, you know, in the 2008s, 2009s, a lot of people were losing their jobs and all that stuff. So they had to switch to uh, medical physics, which required training, years of training, retraining and getting qualifications, certifications, all that stuff. So that took some time. This was yeah. happening while at the end of my high school slash college. So by the time they were certified, I was in college and that's when they like bought their house. But that was a very long thing. You know, some, some people who come to America, they, they secured that in the eighties or the nineties or whatever. And those are the Brown families who have like really nice houses and all that stuff that took, that took us some time before they got to that point. So I've, I've, I feel like I've lived um, so many different phases of my life where I understood what it was like to be, lower middle class, middle, middle class, upper middle class, and kind of like understanding that process over the past 30 years. It sounds like there's more pressure built up on you to not mess up. I don't know if music, (laughs) well, I guess I'll ask you that later about music (laughs) and how your parents felt. But going back, um, it sounds like your parents and your family were intellectual people. Was there creativity? Was there arts and music in your family? Yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about Bangladesh that I feel like is so central to its culture is that music and the arts are very much built in in Bangladeshi Bengali culture, even if you're Bengali Indian as an ethnicity. Um, There's just from the poetry to the music to like having people over your house and having sing-alongs and with the harmonium and everything. That was definitely a big part of growing up. My mom could play slide guitar and harmonium and she was definitely the musical one of our family. And, And my dad's brother played uh guitar and tabla and sitar and all that stuff so you know that is definitely a big part of growing up being into all that kind of music so i I played violin growing up that was my kind of like instrument of choice um Hmm. and yeah so very musical household but also very intellectually forward household where there was a lot of emphasis on studies and all that i feel like that's the typical brown household yeah yeah. yeah but in terms of pressure you know not only I, I guess I would be second generation, right? Yeah. If they were first gen, they came here and then I came after because I wasn't even born here. No, um, technically you're an immigrant. Yeah, I'm technically an immigrant. And so, and I don't have siblings. That's the other thing. Is you're an only child. 
I'm an only child. So there's a lot of specific kind of factors here. My yeah. entire, all my cousins have siblings. It's yeah. It's very rare two. for a Brown kid to be to an be, only child know, of that yeah. generation. Totally. Yeah. But you know, it was the nineties and it was the first time coming here. I think they wanted to, but everyone's circumstance is different. I, I, looking back, I don't think they would have been able to afford having a second child. And it's really interesting, you know, like of my parents' generation, they have three, five, seven siblings, whatever. And then my generation, it's, it maxes out at two. No one has three. And then we're the only ones with just one. So I, I definitely think a lot about why we came here, what my purpose is. But if you're an only child and you're growing up in a predominant community in America, that must have been really tough for you. Which, and none of, you don't have any uncles and aunts or cousins here. That must have no. been a really tough time for you to kind of adjust to the world that you that you were brought to. Yeah, I mean, for me, yeah, I live. I what was interesting is that even though my schools were predominantly white in Illinois and Pennsylvania, my mom and dad reached out to all the Bengalis in the city who all lived in other school districts and stuff. So there would be like one or two in every school district. And then that's how they all kind of like congregated. In Pittsburgh, there was a Bengali association that like all the families would meet, have events, cultural events on the weekends, all that stuff. So I had Bengali friends. I just didn't go to school with them. And then when I moved right. to New York, it was really mind blowing because suddenly in Long Island, like there's so many Asian, South Asian really diverse communities out there. So I was suddenly going to school with a bunch of Indian people, which I had never done my whole life when I got to high school. And, um, but, but in terms of the family aspect, I, I was always a little bitter is a strong word, but you know, you, you watch TV and you know, you, the whole like hanging out with your grandparents and having a family and Thanksgiving, it's all sweet and wonderful. And I'm like, yeah, I, you know, I only have my mom and dad. I don't even have siblings. And so that dynamic, I felt like my whole life was a little bit missing where like I didn't have this big family in Long Island. It's crazy because, you know, a lot of these Indian people have immigrated here between the 80s and the 90s and they did it so collectively. I think about how like I have friends who have so many uncles and aunts and cousins and they're all like doctors and lawyers and engineers and they have this like like um, second generation collective unit. And I think that's so sick. It's like what the Italians and Jewish people did like a hundred years ago, they came in, in droves like that. And I always think about how, you know, what am I to do next as like the only person here from my family? How do I connect with my cousins who are now, you know, I have a cousin in Sweden, cousin in Australia, how yeah. do we like kind of get together and how do we move forward? I don't know. Just like existential questions like that. I think about a lot. <laughs> you know, you're yearning for a community when you're younger, as you're now that you're older, and, yeah. you know, it's easier to communicate with people yeah. around the world. Have you ever tried reaching out and and cultivating the relationships with your cousins and your Yeah, Yeah, we got like friends? Face, Facebook and WhatsApp and all that stuff. And, you know, I'll like FaceTime with my family and they're super proud and everything. They, they see everything going on. They actually follow pretty closely, which is a little embarrassing because, you know, context is really important. I feel like, you know, if you post certain photos or like memes or whatever. It's like, I know someone in Bangladesh is watching this. I wonder if they understand it or get why I'm posting something. I don't know, but yeah. like, you know, they're, they're always. So, <laughs> so you have a big fan club in Bangladesh. I, I, I don't know about Bangladesh in general, but I know my family is like looking on Facebook and stuff. Like if stuff I write like that, notable you know? Bangladeshi Americans on Wikipedia, your name pops up. I always think about that. I, this is something that's not cool. <laughs> It's something that me and my manager talk about. I, tapping into Bangladesh has been just, I, there's definitely like a, a roadblock. You know, I feel like there's not a lot of cultural flow out of Bangladesh. There's not a lot of cultural flow into Bangladesh. I don't know. I have, I have a lot of, I have a lot of thoughts on that. You know, do I, you want to do just, something? Do you want to like go there and, and try to do something I'd creative there or collaborate? I'd, I'd love to. I, I don't know about collaboration, but you know, they, I, I think that, I would say this about India as well. They, the culture, it's very enclosed. And, you know, we can transition to this topic because I have a lot to say about it, actually. Okay. But I've noticed in over the last few years, you'll, you'll see that a lot of East Asians are having this incredible renaissance right now between film and TV and music. You have Shang-Chi, you have Crazy Rich Asians, you have like Minari, like all these wonderful spectrum of films from the highest of mainstream pop culture to like indie A24 stuff happening. There's like a Michelle Young film coming out next month on A24 that looks incredible. Um, and you have in music, you have 88 Rising, you have 
Rich, Brian, and Joji, and Nikki, and all these people who yeah. can play shows in Indonesia, Philippines, Korea, but also play like the Rose Bowl in LA and America. You have K-pop coming from Korea being popular in Japan and in America. You have J-pop coming over here. This cross-cultural flow is so fascinating and excellent to see. And I, I still think it's a win for any minority. I think it's still a win. Right. But what I, what I don't see happening is the same cross-cultural flow with South Asia. And I think there's a few reasons for that. One, I think culturally, South Asia, I'm talking India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal. I think that there's this conservative aura of the countries where a lot of culture that's happening within each country is kind of contained. Like if you look at East Asia, a lot of them are trying to replicate Western looks and fashion and style and all that stuff. If you look at K-pop, nothing about K-pop is like specifically Korean other than the language. The way they yeah. dress is very Western. The way they dance is taking from like hip hop and modern dance styles. Whereas in India, a lot of the culture is still based on traditional and conservative roots from the way they dress, the style of music, Bollywood, all that stuff. And you could say that Bollywood is globally popular. It is for sure. Mm. But I would not say that in America, it's totally penetrated. You have people like Priyanka Chopra who will come here and try to do Hollywood and stuff like that. And like somewhat make their way in but isn't really like a cultural mainstay no. and then so similarly you'll have like you know you have south asian comedians you have hassan minaj and mindy kaling but they're not really going out to india and doing stuff out there they're known but they're not like doing stuff out there so there's this kind of like cultural roadblock happening where like things from there aren't really coming here and aren't really being received by the western audience as a whole and then things here aren't really going there because they don't seem too interested in like the American like distillation of brown culture, I guess. Yeah. And I really want this to change because when I see East Asian artists succeed at such a high, high, high level, it's like, I want that for us. Like the last, like we haven't had like a Shang-Chi cultural moment. We haven't had like a crazy rich Asians. I'm not really sure why. I know people are trying really hard. I think the last time there was this massive brown movement in Hollywood was like Dev Patel with Slumdog Millionaire. And even that was just like, that's a Danny Boyle movie. And then there's all these like, yeah, you know, and then you have, you know, we had Kumail Nanjiani with the big sick. And but that kind of, that came and I, went. Came and went. I really like the movie. I know there's a lot of critique because of the portrayal of Pakistani women, all valid, of course. Um, but, you know, we, we don't have the wins as consistent or as saturated as the East Asian community, which, again, I think is great. And it, I still consider that a win for any minority at the end of the yeah. day. But I, I, you know, I've been talking to a lot of people about this. I think that by 2030, just eight years from now, I, I'd like to see a shift. I'd like to see kind of the next generation take the reins and, and really push for it. I, I think it's slowly happening and even, even a conversation like this, even like connecting with, with you and, and this platform, I think is a step forward as well. It's something that I've been trying to be a little bit more cognizant about over the last few years, because as my career kind of progressed, I wouldn't say we like ignored South Asian press or anything like that, but it was not something that immediately came to mind. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'll stop there. So what was the shift? Why, when did you decide to like, you know, what was the shift that made you decide to approach South Asian press? So something I've been thinking a lot about is that in my world in electronic music, image is not sort of in the forefront. If you make decent music and you have an audience, people will come out and support and not think too hard about like what you look like or where you're from. And I think that that's why there's quite a lot of notable like East Asian, South Asian electronic artists. There's Giraffage, um, there's Zoo. Um, you know, it's not a lot, but they, they mm -hmm. exist and like they've they've made it to a certain point in their careers. And I think for us, like, you know, I had Indian Summer, which definitely was the jumping off point that changed right. my trajectory. But after that, I didn't really make any music that sounded like Indian Summer, but I was still being propelled by, by all my consistent releases over the years and just like touring and all that stuff. Um, but that being said, what I noticed is that there wasn't... Like I didn't, I didn't rely on my South Asian identity to like get me to where I was, okay. which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think 
while that was happening, I noticed that like there wasn't any conversation about the South Asian part. And I feel like on the spectrum, like you don't want to, you don't want to lean too hard into the fact that you're a certain race or an identity or whatever, because you want the art to speak for itself, but you also don't want a complete absence of it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because there's so many ways to view this. You can play the representation card and you can play it strong. I know that sometimes you see that in Hollywood because that's kind of the buzzword right now. It's like, oh, we have an Asian movie. We have a South Asian, this, this, and that. Yeah. And I totally get that. Optically, it looks great. And, and producers good and executives. marketing. It's good marketing. I, I totally get it. Um, but when there's a complete absence, I think that that's also a problem too because then that's when stories or history kind of get untold. And my perspective was that, again, this is a big spectrum. I, for South Asian people specifically, I see a lot of Indian stories being told. I see a lot of Pakistani stories being told. I don't, mm -hmm. I just don't see a lot of Bangladeshi stories being told. So in 2019, when I got off tour, we had done like a really, really good tour, like sold out every day. We're playing big venues. And I had like a moment of pause and I was like, all right, I did this. And I'm really stoked. I have fans, I have people coming out, all that stuff. But I feel like the something about the story wasn't being told properly. You know, I, something about the way it was being framed was like, I felt like something was missing almost. And that's when I, I also realized that I, what was happening to me, I wanted to also happen to other people as well. Because mm -hmm. I also realized that like, there wasn't any South Asian artist who was doing what I was doing. And then it, just common phrase, it is lonely at the top. If you're the only person doing being in your lane, it what's the point if you can't help someone else doing it too? I tried my best to like uplift as many East Asian, South Asian artists when I go on tour. I brought my friend Asim Hotel Garuda, who's a phenomenal house DJ. My friends Manila Killa brought them on tour. I try I, I've done my best to like put people on like that. And I think in 2019 I realized I really wanted to like broaden my genre horizons in terms of paying attention to like who else is out there? Who's making music? And how? what can I do to help them get to where I am any way I can, opening doors or connecting them with other people? Been getting on TikTok a lot and looking at like young kids who are making music and just like randomly coming across South Asian musicians of any genre and just trying to reach out to them, trying to talk to them, see what they're like doing and all that stuff, which has been really exciting. But to go back to your question, it's twofold. I reached out to press because I felt like our story wasn't being as told in the way that I wanted it to. And then two, I wanted to just meet as many people as possible to really do this dot connecting. And that's something that I felt like is a, in a macro large picture level lacking in the South Asian community. And this goes back to immigrating here. This actually relates to the first yeah. part of our conversation. Yeah, because I was thinking that too. What happens when you come to America? Well, the things that parents say all the time is, I was number one in my class. I yeah. was number one in my class, that's why we came here. You also have to be number one in your class. You have to get into an Ivy League school. You have to be the top in your class to get to medical school, to be the best doctor. So I could brag about it to my friends, you know? <laughs> and that applies, unfortunately, that, that trickles down into whatever field you go into. And even going into music, sort of in the back of your head, you have to be, the best as possible you have to be the only one all that stuff which i think is detrimental and i think that's something that is unfortunately kept a lot of brown people kind of separated and not collectively coming together to like win as a community and i think there's a lot of competition between us yeah and it's it's weird it's so ingrained from childhood everything is a competition everything is like you have to be number one it's toxic and it's it takes time to really unlearn and undo and all that stuff that i think that's why in 2019 after like we had finished that tour i was like it, when i finally had that pause i was thinking about all this stuff and how almost wrong it felt to like have, have done this alone i want to see 10 more jive wolves there just aren't right now i want in the next five years I want to see more of that and i, I don't want to just see also someone with just a big hit i want to see someone on the road touring playing thousand two thousand five thousand cap venues mm -hmm. i want i want more of that because i see south asians doing that i'm sorry, sorry east asians doing that really well i want to see more south asians on the road and, and playing shows like that too um 
sorry that was that no was no that's great right there that's great <laughs> yeah let it out do you think your next music or your upcoming music projects are going to have more south asian related stuff you know one of my questions was, was going to be you know how come you don't show yourself in any of your music videos you're kind mm. of very low-key yeah is there a reason for that i've been told by a lot of people who are in marketing that if i show my face on my page and if i talk about me a lot people it'll go it'll increase more because people need a face to hold on to with your music did you actively not show yourself those are really good questions so the the first part of your question you said yeah was would you, influence, are you gonna make more yeah. brown stuff or more yeah, brown also, music i mean indian yeah. summer was your was your was breakup but one. after that yeah. you didn't really didn't go really, back yeah. to that so really good question something that people have frequently asked about um since then since 2015 which is crazy because that was seven years ago um i think right now i don't have any plans to do that i think that that was something that my my friend for a really long time was telling me like oh you should sample indian music in, in, in your beats or whatever and i tried it and i would say i just got really lucky um that being said I'm also a big believer of never say never. If, if it makes mm -hmm. sense, I would love to do it. But I love all types of music. I love all types of genres. I think right now with future projects and future music that I'm working on, the answer is no. But that's something I think about a lot with South Asian music, because if your music is too brown, then if, if it's very South Asian, it's not white enough for white audience. If your music is too white, then it's too white for a South Asian audience. Right. And I think that's this this thing that pigeonholes a lot of South Asian artists, unfortunately. And I, I, I don't know how people we can break out of this. With East Asian people, it's weird. Like you look at all of 88 Rising, none of them are tapping into East Asian music. They're purely East Asian based on their looks. That's it. They're making R&B, they're making pop, they're making rap, and they're being very successful at it. And it's weird, like when you think of R&B, pop and rap, if you put a brown person in, in this mental image you have in your head, a lot of people have a hard time taking it seriously. Because when you think of a brown person, you think of, unfortunately, all these stereotypes that the Western media has sort of placed on you. There's a lot of like internalized racism also that kind of like goes into that. Sometimes I'll see an artist on TikTok earnestly upload a song and they're South Asian and in the comments, people will just say like, what are you doing, bro? Like you should be studying or something like that. Like, uh -huh. and it's just, it's a little sad. It's like, it's hard to really break out of that mold. Um, but to answer your question, no, at this time, but uh, also never say never. And then in terms of me being not showing my face in music videos, that's a very specific reason. I love telling stories through music videos. I grew up on MTV and Fuse. And I think that when I make a music video, to me, the emphasis is the story being told and the music. And I think my face, I don't hide my face on like Spotify or Apple Music or anything like that, or even at my shows or when I meet fans. Like there's definitely a higher level of mystery that you can attempt if you're an artist. Yeah. But I would say I'm somewhere in between of like, you know, for the music videos, to me, I try to treat them as like works of art. And like, I, I feel like putting myself in the video detracts from any stories I'm trying to tell or the music itself. But that's my personal philosophy. I totally get that from a marketing perspective. Having your face shown is more relatable. And yeah, I'm open to it, but it would have to be right. It would have to be the right cameo. Actually, in, if you lose my mind, we shot something where I did make a cameo. And I, I looked at the footage. I was like, I, I think this would distract from the story that we were trying to tell. Okay. Um, but that's another, that's, a, that's another thing that, I, that relates to what I was saying before. A lot of people tell me that like, oh, I had no idea that Jai Wolf was a South Asian person. Yeah. Mostly be probably because I, I don't show my face too much. No. Um, and then also if you listen to any of my records from the last five years, because it's like Jai Wolf featuring a singer or, or an instrumental track, there's really no way to discern that I'm a South Asian person at all, unless you like d click a bit more than just hitting exactly. play. If you hit Indian Summer gives it away just a bit, just enough yeah. for you to go and Google it. Justin, yeah, exactly, just enough. And but even then, it's funny because you know Sarah Khan by any chance? You know who she is? No. Um, oh, in, the, uh, in your doesn't she work in your company? No. She she reached out. We we hired her to do press and stuff last year to to connect with people like you. Um, and she she when I met met up with her, she was like, I had no idea you were brown. I thought it needed summers weighed by a white guy trying to appropriate brown music, and I was like. They exist. That's true. That is definitely a trope where like, uh, let's say a white producer takes like 
ethnic beats. There's that like, Diplo Diplo song, is there? Diplo's Diplo's done that before with like Lean On. Like he had they shot it in, in India and they had yeah. like women in saris dancing yeah. in the music video. And he he he's one of the few people that I think is actually genuinely interested in global music, but it is a trope of like white producer finds obscure sample and then turns into a song or whatever. Um but yeah, I don't know. I I just I I want more. I want the next generation to not be afraid of showing their face and being really proud of who they are and being as earnest and and you know being themselves as possible to to when when they release music or market themselves or whatever. Because that's definitely something that I did think a lot about. I thought even from the name Jai Wolf, I, I was like, should I use my real name Sajib? Should I use something a little bit more palatable? To me, it was really important to have. South Asian element in the name. I picked J or Jai um, because it was easy to say. Um, yeah. But I'm starting to see a lot of young artists start to use their um, actual names, which I think is phenomenal. I just, I personally just didn't think. Well, it was a different time incredible. back then. It was a lot it was, tougher, it was. you know. So don't yeah. be hard on yourself. <laughs> totally, totally. I mean, look at Jay Sean. His name is Jay Sean. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's the most palatable name. Now you have. Like it's so cool to see. I have like Anik Khan is is Bangladeshi and he's from New York. He's using his name. Yeah. My friend uh, Rema is using her name. Uh, this girl Ashley Meta, like her last name is Meta. It's great. Um, Shreya Call, like it's cool. It's really cool to see uh, South Asian kids like really own own their names like that. I think it's great. Yeah, but it was a different time back then. So like yeah. for us, it was like yeah, uh, it was tough. Yeah, I had a whole I had a, I made a whole list too. I even I even considered using a white name, but I thought using a white name would create too much of an identity crisis, you know? Like if if I, if things worked out, I became successful, years later I'd be like, "Oh man, they're calling me Mike or something." <laughs> like Mike Wolf. <laughs> you know? Mike Wolf. Did your did your parents um have a hard time getting used to you going into music and ditching your education? Um, no. Well, yes and no. They, they were always really happy to support me playing violin and being musical. As a hobby. As a hobby. Okay, but now this is your future and you're like, mom, dad, I want to be, I want to be a musician. Yeah. So they, they, I think there might have been a small time where I was like, oh, I'd love to go to Juilliard or something like that. But I, I think I quickly gave up on that. And there was a time where I was like, oh, I'll, I'll try to do pre-med. When I got to college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I ended up doing like media communications marketing. But uh-huh. that was around the time when I, I interned at a management company that worked with artists. And I kind of realized that if I worked adjacent to actual musicians, I would regret it for the rest of my life. And that was kind of like a reality check for me. They told that to my parents. I told them I wanted to try music. But the problem was, is that in 2013, when I was graduating, my university did not let me graduate because I was missing a couple of requirements. I had all my credits, but I had to do like this like final presentation because I was in like a specialized school and I moved home. My parents were like, there's no way you're like, you have to live with us. If you don't have a job, you're still finishing school and you're trying to do music. You have to like move back to your parent, back to our house. Yeah. Um, So you were living alone in an apartment somewhere. You were in a dorm I was in a dorm and then I lived in an apartment for two years for my junior, senior year. And then I moved back home, which was a little tough because like a lot of my friends moving out, they're getting real jobs. And I'm like in like just just in like uh, being 22 at your parents' house was was very, very strange to me. Even though a lot of my friends were doing it in a save money perspective, they at least still had jobs or going to grad school and doing all this competitive stuff. I would say I got lucky though. I think with it was within a year that things started to like take off. And once my parents saw that and they saw that there was like income because you know, every brown parent, it's like you have to reach a certain threshold of success before they like give their stamp of approval. Right. And I and I told myself or get married. Like, or yeah, that too. Yeah. And so I, I was like for my first New York City headline and sold out show, I'll invite my parents so they can see what this is all about. So that was 2015. We played Rough Trade in Brooklyn and sold it out, had my parents come out. So now they come out to every single show that I play in New York City. 
they've come out the Bowery Ballroom, Terminal Five, Brooklyn Mirage. Like they're always there supporting. That's so cool. Yeah, it's yeah, cool. Your, your your concerts are like big big crowds festivals. Those are yeah, you know, those are those are some big parties that they have to go yeah. to and see you. Yeah, they. I always I always have a very specific like. I'm texting with uh, my tour manager and the and the venue people. I, I tell them like exactly when my parents are showing up, get them escorted into the safest part of the venue where they'll not be bothered by other people. But sometimes like, you know, fans will be like, oh, you're, you're Sajib's parents. And, that's you know, so try, funny. Try yeah. Because it's like two old, old brown. Yeah. People <laughs> in a crowd of young people. They're going to they're going to stand out. But I think I think now there's usually like really like when we did Terminal 5 in 2019, they had like literally an entire balcony space to themselves. There's no one could bother them. But they I make sure that they're like not going through like the depths of the crowd i make sure they have someone like escort them and all that stuff and they get it i would say they're definitely a bit more understanding than most brown parents but if i i would say that the it's because once they saw the money they were like we get it like seven years ago i, I think that if, if it, the struggle continued for three or four more years they might have reacted differently i know every parents are different but i don't know it even even being an only child when you have two kids, the, the the probability is split between the two. If one of them becomes successful, that's great. If the other one doesn't, all right, that's the one that didn't become successful. Yeah. They'll, be they'll be disappointed, but at least the other one did. But if, if you have one kid, you're putting all your eggs in that basket. So I feel like in their minds, they're like, man, we came all this way here. <laughs> like, he's got to make something of himself. So that's that's so funny. Are you um are you a Muslim by any chance? Are your parents Muslim or Hindu? I don't, know if that's a, I don't know if that's a personal question or not. That's not a personal is. question. Yeah. So because my follow-up question would be 9-11. Yeah. So I kind of want to know. So I want to talk about what your faith is and, and what yeah. you practice. Yeah, well, we come from a Muslim majority country, but my parents are actually Hindu. Right. Um, which keeps adding to all these layers, man. We're yeah. basically a minority is, of a minority. Which was why, I guess, why your dad left the, the country to India for safety because they were killing Hindus there. They were, yeah. That is something, that wasn't the main reason, but that's actually why my uncle left because my uncle was a doctor and he was being discriminated against in the hospital. And he's like, I need to yeah. just leave. They always take um, the elite out first. Yeah. 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 They were, there was the targeted kind of genocide in the seventies, but by the time it was the nineties and by the time Bangladesh was an independent country, there was still like a lot of just discrimination, um, discrimination happening in the country, Um, which I don't, I don't harbor any, I have Pakistani friends. I have Muslim friends. I don't harbor that stuff doesn't come to me, you know, but um, I grew up Hindu, um, went to temple, all that stuff. I, Personally, don't identify now. I would say I lean more atheist, but I am open to a lot of the concepts and teachings and all that stuff. I went to like some religious classes growing up, but I entertain the idea of reincarnation. And I think Hinduism is like a beautiful religion. My, mm-hmm. my mom still practices it pretty every day. My dad is kind of like moderately religious, I guess. He's, he's not like praying every day like my mom does, but um yeah he's, you know that he's that's culturally of, hindu he's culturally hindu yeah, yeah, yeah but he's i wouldn't say he's atheist though you know i feel okay. like it's pretty, pretty hammered in if you grew up in the 60s how did 9-11 affect you i mean you were already a lonely kid yeah yeah 9-11 was weird man that just affected every brown person yeah. no matter middle eastern indian pakistan hindu muslim doesn't matter if you had brown skin that was a weird time i would say y- you live so you were born in the 80s? Are you nah, Gen X? 87. 87? Okay. So you're like el- elder millennial. Yeah, I guess. Or just millennial. <laughs> yeah, I'm elder millennial. I think I just, yeah, elder millennial. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah. So, like, you know, you, you were in grade school. seven, I think, grade eight. Yeah. When that I was happened. in I was in grade five. And before that, apparently I was a very social and like, you know, fun loving child. I switched schools right after 9-11. So I think the combination of switching schools and being the only Oof, brown person. Ouch. Definitely was hard to make friends. I had friends, but like, it's hard to explain. I definitely was bullied a lot, all that stuff. There was some light racism here and there. And 
I did looking back though, I went to a summer camp once it was like a YMCA or something. And like all the faculty treated me really strangely. Oof. And I didn't, you don't realize that as a kid, you start to question if something's actually wrong with you, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. Um, Definitely a lot of internalized stuff that had to be like un unworked later unpacked. Yeah, still, still even to this day. I don't think it know? ever goes away. I don't it really think it doesn't. ever goes away. Yeah, it really doesn't. Um, but I, I, I will say I think that is why. I think when people meet me, I think it's very quick to realize that I'm I'm, I'm whitewashed, quote unquote. I think if you put me in a lineup of like your stereotypical brown dude. I, yeah I but you're not, not whitewashed i mean you know the you know the language you you right. listen to the music you yeah you understand the history of your country right i guess there's levels to it i think i think i because i had a very strong bangladeshi upbringing and i, I do speak bengali very fluently yeah that that definitely offsets a lot of my personal cultural exactly. interests but I, I i think for me what it was was that i had a, a lot of western culture was withheld from me for a really long time my parents were very strict or my mom was really strict and so when once i discovered pop culture and i discovered western culture i like it completely immersed myself in it but that was something that like like um like i think now a lot of people because they didn't grow up with a lot of South Asian, like I have friends who don't speak their home language or, you know, they didn't grow up with it. Now they're like discovering it and they're kind of like shifting back. I think for me, because I grew up with it, I then was like, oh, I'm, I'm more interested into Western stuff now. That's but fair. For everyone, it's a different balance. It's right. The whole, the whole dual identity thing and all that stuff. Um, by, by whitewashed, I think I mean by like what, whatever your expectation of your stereotypical millennial brown person is, it's, I would say I fear different from all that i don't know do you find um, it hard to fit in into a party of brown people or a community of brown people i find yeah. i i find it it's very hard for me to fit in to that community but on one-on-one -on -one basis i'm good but yeah. when if it's a bunch of people telling jokes and things like that i don't feel comfortable i, I have a i have a very specific take about this my close circle friends all races i have a lot of brown close friends asian close friends white close friends um my high school friends they're all ethnic and asian and and brown and south asian um but there's a difference between that and having a very specifically only brown south asian circle of friends which i have a hard time relating to i do think that a lot of south asian friend groups can be almost circle jerky i don't know how else to explain that but that's the only <laughs> word that comes to mind this relates back to everything i said about south asian culture and why it's almost held back i think the the circle jerk nature of where, where you're where it's so confined in in a circle makes it hard for the culture to progress forward you could see that on instagram you could see it on tiktok and like i feel like by holding on to that, it's not allowing for evolution or a cultural shift or anything like that. Even like sometimes the comedy, when you look at comedians or stand-up, you'll see the same jokes recycled. And I think what's most fascinating is that if you're someone who grew up with Gen X culture filtered into you, you'll see like repeated jokes across the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, and now. I see a joke on TikTok where a kid is talking about his personal home experience with his brown family and i'm like i've heard this before like so many different times it still exists today yeah. that's the kind of thing that i think really holds us back culture you look at east asians and every thing that they're involved with fashion music design is really pushing everything forward it's original um, it's original yeah and like that's exciting even with like the movies coming out i love everything they're doing man. just like it's a like i said my, my thing is i'm always happy to see it i always see it as a win and i look at that and i'm like we should be doing stuff like that too we should have original stories where we have like a brown lead and it's not just dev patel recycled into a role you know i love dev patel but like get someone new what's who's the new hot brown talent who's the new simu liu of of south asia you know i want to see that person succeed um 
but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I say this out of love. I say this out of wanting to see our culture really be more than just, oh, the CEO of Pepsi is a South Asian person. Oh, like this, you know, we have an entire generation of doctors, blah, 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 blah. Like we can be such a cultural powerhouse. You know, there's so much potential. Mm -hmm. We really put our minds together. If we really connect and really just, you know, get rid of the toxic, there can only be one. I need to be the best. If we like get rid of those elements, there's so much potential that we can achieve by just coming together. And even just having a conversation like this, I, my, my mission statement after Jai Wolf reaches its inevitable end is I want to see more of me. I want to see 10 of me. I want to see people go where I can't even go. I want to see people go even higher. One, one way I phrase this is like, I want to see like a brown Justin Bieber. I want to see a pop star who's a brown person because, you know, we got Jay Sean, but he just, he didn't really go as far as he could have gone. He, I really think he could have been like a Jason Derulo type, you know, and just mm-hmm. make pop bangers. Then we have Nav. Nav is someone who like, my, my thing about Nav is that brown people love to like give, give their cosign, but brown people weren't the ones to uplift him. It was, the weekend and that's true that's true he became it was and this goes back to my parents they're like we will support you after you reach a certain threshold of success and income and with nav no brown person could claim that they were there at the beginning of nav's career it's like after he reached a certain level of of mainstream success all these brown people are like "Ooh, we fuck with nav doja cat same thing when they found out that doja cat was part thummel all I saw on TikTok was like, yo, she's one of us. None of these kids were there when Doja Cat was on SoundCloud six years ago dropping tracks. You know, right, it's like right. after the fact that she's got multiple Billboard Hot 100 hits. Oh, she's part Dummel. I'm I'm team Doja now. That that kind of thing is that kind of the way they consume culture after a certain threshold success is so bizarre to me. Um, but I want to see that change. I want to see people come together and support and uplift this next generation from the start and not just like after they reach a certain level. And this goes, again, this goes back to 2019 and, and why I wanted to do more doc connecting. Cause what I realized was that I was being uplifted by a diverse community of people. If you come to a show, you will see East Asian, South Asian, black, brown, white, Hispanic, you'll see a lot of different races at my shows. And it's something that I'm very prideful of. But I would not say that the South Asian community single-handedly uplifted me. Mm -hmm. And not saying that that should have happened, but I want to see that happen to like the next generation. I want to see um, the next like hot shot artist be truly uplifted like that. And then I want to see them supporting them when they do their first headline shows and they're playing 100 cap rooms, 500 cap rooms, 1000 cap rooms. I want to see my friends member who are um, Ishan and Will. Ishan is Indian and Will is white. They have this phenomenal electronic project called Memba. And I took them on tour a couple of years ago. I found them out because they were also releasing music through Odessa's label. And it's Mm -hmm. the same record label where I released Indian Summer. Such nice guys, phenomenal producers. I I got to see them a few weeks ago at um, a venue in Brooklyn. I'm totally blanking on the name. The show is incredible. But on top of the show being incredible, the audience was majority South Asian. It was so cool to see mm-hmm. walking in and like seeing that South Asian people had shown an interest in this group and, and being there for them. And it just like brought so much joy to me. I was like, this is clearly a step in the right direction. It was so cool to see. Remember, I feel like their branding is also quite mysterious online. But if you listen to their music, you can tell that they're influenced by a lot of Indian music and the way I see it, it's like, if you want more Indian summer type stuff, listen to Memba because they're really taking it to that level of fusion between Indian influence and like Western EDM and all that stuff. And I want to see more of that. I want to see, I want to see these, all these upcoming singers and artists and rappers do the same thing. Like I actually got lunch with Anik Khan last month um, in Queens, took me to this like Brazilian barbecue place that he goes to. Yeah. Such a nice guy. He was telling me about he just sold out Barry Ballroom and went on tour and like played in London and was telling me about his experience and so exciting to hear. Selling out Barry Ballroom in New York City is like it's a very, very like it's an iconic New York City venue, you know? So it's a big deal. And I was really happy to hear that. I, I was out of town when he did the show, but I wanted to know how he felt about it and all that stuff. And 
yeah, just do I you want, I want more of this? <laughs> do you do you think that's your purpose? Do you think that this is the purpose that you want to do? Because to be uh, technically, you're kind of a senior in the music industry within the South Asian community because you reached success a while ago, and now you have all these new people coming up. So you're kind of yeah. you're young, but you're kind of um, ahead of everybody. Yeah. At this so, point, yeah, senior is a good word, which is funny. I'm 30. Yeah. I still feel like I there's some there's some things I'd like to do before I tap out. Yeah. But there is the inevitable. But you've tap reached out. a pretty big success. Uh, you've reached high success. Like you've done right. a lot. Right. And, and right. Yeah. No, I yeah, I totally agree. I so to me, I I would love to in the back half of my life transition into a mentor role where I work with young upcoming South Asian artists and take them to where they need to go, whatever goals and hopes and dreams that they aspire to, I would like to be there for them and, and, and help them out. Uh, Cause I didn't really have anyone like that. I had myself and my manager, we kind of like worked really hard together to get to where we are today, but there was no like roadmap. Mm-hmm. And this is, and again, this is another reason why I reached out because we were building the roadmap. We were following kind of an existing pathway that white artists had done prior, but no yeah. brown artists had ever done. Like there's definitely a wide spectrum of what you can do. I think Nav has had incredible streaming success that I haven't personally reached yet. He has plaques and all that stuff. But what Nav lacks in touring, I feel like that's kind of where I really succeeded at, where I was playing shows and venues that other South Asian artists had, hadn't necessarily reached yet. Um, so I feel like in the touring world and in terms of that aspect, I have quite a lot of knowledge. I would say I don't have what Nav has in terms of he's just releasing hits on hits on hits on hits. Yeah. Um, and those are two different, those are two different types of success. You know, I want to see someone who gets out both, you know, who has like hundred millions of streams on every song, but also selling out like crazy venues. Um, and, you know, in terms of reaching out, that's, that's, and telling the story. That was, that was another reason why, why I was like, there needs to be, the story needs to be told somehow. And then once our story is done, I would like for that story to continue with other artists and to see where they can go. Because like I said, it's unlimited potential. This, this world is for the taking for them, you know? And I wanna see Gen Z artists, kids who were born in the late nineties or two thousands become icons, you know? They have, they have the potential to this, it's in them. They just really need to tap into it and they need to have an, a network to support them. And that network requires a few things. To become successful, so many factors have to be working at the same time. Not only do you need to have like industry executives believing in you, managers, agents, label, that are unfortunately predominantly white, you also need to have an audience that really connects to what you're doing and, and, and to um, engage them. And I think that one of the things that the South Asian community lacks is, is that engagement. Like I said before, it takes a certain level of success before the South Asian community is like, we're on board for this. And they need to really understand that they, they, should, be, they should be on board earlier. How do you do that? Well, I think the kids are doing it really well. I've been talking to a lot of younger artists and I could see that, that there is a shift happening. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons why in Gen X and millennials 80s, 90s, early 2000s, you didn't really see that, is that when people immigrate here, we are on a one-track mind. We have to get our degrees, we have to get our higher education, we have to get a job, we have to get married. Mm-hmm. If you're doing all that stuff, none of the money that you have is really going towards supporting artists or entertainment in that form. Entertainment is usually going out, getting a drink, going on dates, whatever, going to like cultural functions, which is fine. But I, I do think that the lack of that kind of consumer behavior of supporting the arts or music uh, led to why there's quite a disparity now between like East Asian success and South Asian success. You go to a concert, you go to a festival, you'll see so many East Asian people there. You go to a rave, you'll see a lot of East Asian people there. A lot of that comes down to how the family dynamic works where like South Asians are a little bit more docile and like ready to listen to their parents. (laughs) yeah and they rebel in different ways I, I totally understand like you know you get the curfew and all that stuff but east asians are are more willing to adopt to western values quicker i mean even look at their names that's a big one right there when they come to america they they, they get christian names even if they aren't really christian whereas like south asian names to this day you know even being 30 are 
anyone having kids now are naming their children South Asian names. And that's a big part of it too. It's a really small detail, but I think that's still part of this larger narrative of how East Asians have adopted a lot of Western ideals and South Asians are somewhat conservative in their general life approach, which isn't a bad thing, but mm -hmm. that has led to why the music landscape looks like this right now and why there's like one of me, but you know, 10 of East Asian artists or whatever, you know. What advice would you want to give to people listening who are in the music or trying to make it into the music world? Um, you probably get this a lot. Yeah, no, it's a good question because I think about this. It's really just persistence, man. It's really Don't give up. It, yeah, I know it might be a cliched answer, but it truly is. I think I've been in music long enough where I've seen people tap out. It is, it is an industry that will really chew you up and spit you out. I've felt burnt out so many times. And even through COVID, I have thought like, is this worth it? Is it worth continuing? All that stuff. It's stuff that like, no matter where you are artistically, it goes through your head. I would say that if you are an, a young aspiring South Asian artist or of any minority, however you identify, persistence is key. It's just waking up every day and being ready to do what you love to do and like holding on to that light, you know, in that flame of what, yeah. what ignites you basically. Cause sometimes that can, you know, dim and feel dark on some days, but what will continue to keep you going is you have to like self-motivate and have, have like endurance and persistence. Those are kind of the two things. Um, and I would say the, the people who have like lasted that long in the music world have only lasted that long because of those traits. Um, and yeah, you know, just, just hang in there and be yourself, be yourself at the end of the day. That's the, that's the other thing. Cause people love raw earnesty and not authentic. Like they don't like, authentic. Yeah. That's the word that keeps escaping me. Authentic yeah. and uh, earnesty, you know, they love, they love those traits. So be yourself and, and keep at it. Let's let's talk about loneliness because that's the name of your <laughs> album, The Cure for yeah. Loneliness. So yeah. I started this Instagram account, um, and I think it was like my subconscious trying to yearn for a community, yeah. right? Just like you, I guess I was a lot lonely when I was a kid, yeah. and uh, this was like my attempt to, uh, you know, grab onto something. And now that I've got this big community of followers on my on my page that loneliness feeling doesn't go away. Like it's, I'm, I'm just like, I, I still feel as an outsider. Yeah. You, you kind of went through the same thing. You felt, uh, you know, you were yearning for a community and now you've, you've, you've reached success and you are now invited to all these, you are the host of the parties of massive amount of people. Do you, and you kind of mentioned it's lonely at the top. Do you still suffer from that loneliness? Oh man, <laughs> that's a really good question because the album definitely touches upon like attempting to be comfortable with it and dealing with that and accepting that that's a part of life. Yeah, uh, I think it comes and goes. I think that can come in so many different shapes and forms. Obviously with COVID, which is funny because it was the year after that the album came out. It was like hitting really hard, of course, being quarantined and all that. It's actually one of the reasons why I moved to Texas for nine months because um, I had a lot of friends down there and I, I lived with like two roommates, slightly less lonely situation. Okay. Um, man, there's just so many, <laughs> so many different levels to this because yeah, like I guess career wise, yes. Like I have my friends, but I would like to see more South Asians reach, reach the success that I have. Um, in terms of like my personal life, it comes and goes, you know, it's, it's winter in New York and it's like really cold. And like, I would say a lot of people definitely feel really lonely around this time in, in New York city when it's cold and like, yeah, but those out. are, those are the average people, yeah, but yeah. you, you know, you're not, you're kind of different in the sense that you are surrounded by people. Your work requires you to be surrounded by people. Right. And at the same time, I guess, you know, you know, for me, if I tell someone I'm an engineer, it's not like it's going to get people attracted to me, especially girls. Yeah. But if yeah. I were to say I'm, you know, Jay Wolf and I'm a, I'm a DJ and this is my show, you know, people are going to jump on to me and girls are going to come to me. 
So with you, you have this kind of power where you could mingle with a lot of people and you have a lot of connections. Does the loneliness kind of, I don't know what I'm asking. Does the loneliness escalate because of that, you know, or does it, does it go away? Does that make sense? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I feel like just meeting people like, loneliness like it doesn't matter like i think i think the way i see it is that like you could be surrounded by you could be at a party and you could be having fun you could be like surrounded by 50 people and still feel true lonely you know and i think i think that's just quintessential how i feel a lot of times like i could be at a show and i could be feeling a certain way but i have to put on the show i have to put on this act i have to like make sure that the crowd is having a great time and that they are getting their money's worth when they come to the show that's actually something that someone I toured with last fall was telling me a lot about his name is Porter Robinson. And he would every night put in like, not even a hundred percent. He would put in like a thousand percent of mm-hmm. his being into every show. He's singing, he's playing grand piano, he's doing electronic stuff. It was so phenomenal. And I was, I was doing open and opening set. I was playing 45 minutes and he was playing an hour, 45 minutes, nearly a two hour set. And it was so phenomenal to see every night. It was like a, almost like a 40 day tour and I asked him, I was like, dude, like, aren't you like tired some days? Like, how do you, how do you do this? And he like, you know, it was his first solo tour in seven years. So I think for him, he was like, listen, like these fans are, it's either their first concert or they're huge fans. They've seen me multiple times or they're paying a lot of money for this. Like I have to have to put on the best show possible, no matter how I'm feeling, no matter if I'm sick, which he was in the San Diego date, the last day of tour, he was like deathly sick, not COVID. He had like the something i don't know what Mm -hmm. it was but he was so sick he still put his all in so in relations to loneliness if you want to like link that to depression or feeling sad or whatever like it doesn't matter if you're surrounded by people like those are still valid feelings that you'll have i don't think it goes away necessarily you know i think Mm -hmm. that's just a part of being a human being and i think that even being an artist like it's good to feel these normal feelings like you've said that like the average person feels this do you also feel this of course I, i'm a normal person at the end of the day yeah it's actually, it's but does it some... is it escalate does it you know does it amplify i would say yes i would say i feel two extremes and in, in, in fact like it being who i am doesn't lessen it in fact it almost increases it because right. i think sometimes being on a stage where you perform for an hour to going back to your hotel room being by yourself or going back home to where I live by myself is two extremes. It's like one is like the highest adrenaline you will ever feel that no drug can ever match mm-hmm. to where it's almost a spiritual feeling to like <laughs> being absolutely by yourself alone with your thoughts. Sometimes almost an immediate succession. You know, you play the show, you go back to your hotel room, you're just alone, you're going to sleep because you got a flight at 6 a.m. the next day. That's right. <laughs> like those are. Yeah, it's two like those are yeah. two, two very, very extremes. That's actually That was definitely the inspiration for the album. That's kind of how Lose My Mind was written, where I was talking, I was in the midst of an, uh, an American, Asia, India, Australia tour. And like in the middle of that, I flew down to Nashville to work with Mr. Gabriel, my friend Gabe, who wrote the song with me and kind of like took all my frustrations and turned into this amazing song that I'm super proud of. Um, and that kind of, shape the rest of the record um doesn't go away in fact i feel like i'm i'm feeling that pretty quite intensely now uh over the past like month or so yeah but that's a part of life man that's how you you learn from it you grow from it and it comes and goes it doesn't it's not permanent no feeling is ever permanent true like you'll never feel lonely for forever but you also not feel the opposite of that forever you know i I think that's a good thing i guess be hope uh be optimistic be hopeful yeah all right um i guess my last question would be what's it like you know like you know that world of you know fame and and money and people fans and parties and diplo and i don't know what how's that world man it's not it's not what people think it is i'll tell you that it's not you know you go on instagram and everything is so so superficial with like how people like me lead their lives and whatever people like to flex on Instagram. I would say I'm quite low key with my lifestyle and all that stuff. I don't really like post anything about that on online. 
it's fun to do the show. I love being on stage. I love performing. That's definitely my my personal bread and butter. I love that like people connect to the music and come out and support. And I'm very thankful for that. But beyond that, like the, you know, I don't drive a sports car or live in a fancy mansion or anything like that. You have like, a cat. I have a cat. You're you know, cat I'm just, person. I'm a cat person. I, you know, I got the cat on my hat right now. Yeah, I um, saw. Yeah. So like, you know, for me, man, I, and I've been telling a lot of people this actually, now that I've been home for two months, like when I'm off tour, when I'm by myself, I love being Sajib, man. That's the type of thing that like, um, I've been trying to like tap into a bit more and trying to be more like a normal person. I don't live in Los Angeles. I have a lot of love for LA. Anyone listening, I'm not trying to disparage. I think they understand. I think they know. Yeah. It's not, it's not the OGs who live there. It's the people who moved to LA. LA can be a place where like, if you want that lifestyle, if you want that Hollywood glitz glam lifestyle, you really can tap into it out there. Um, but yeah, dude, I don't, I don't like mingle with like influencers or anything like that. I don't, yeah, like, yeah. you know, I don't, I, I don't know. I live a normal life. Like I, my parents come visit me, we hang out. Like I have, I'm friends with all my high school friends. Um, and I like being here. I like being near my parents. They're 45 minutes away. I like being friends with my high school friends because all of that keeps me as Sajib as possible, you know? Um, but like I said, it's not, it's not all that what it, as it's like made to look. Mm-hmm. on online or anything like that i still think that like being an artist and being serious about what you do still takes a lot of uh sometimes it'll take the life out of you too to be if i can be very candid you know like you you really have to work hard for it it's not something that necessarily will just come to you automatically a lot of people will reach stages of burnout once they reach a certain level of success <laughs> that's a real thing too you know like the glitz and glam is just the thing that hides all that stuff but it is I don't want to call it a struggle or a burden or anything like that. Cause it's the life I signed up for, but right. it's still, still a lot of hard work, a lot of responsibility, a lot of responsibility. And, and for anyone listening who is like trying to be an artist, like that is, that's why I say persistence and endurance because it is an industry that can really like break you down. And if you're in it for the wrong reasons, if you're in it for the money or the fame or notoriety, whatever that that's the type of thing that will not get you to where you want to be. Um, yeah. That's awesome to say about that. I, yeah, I think uh, that's an hour. We can just uh, finish it here if you want, unless you want to yeah. talk about something or you want to add anything or plug in something. No, I have nothing to plug, man. You know, we're we're between album cycles right now. My last record came out three years ago, and I'm just happy to meet people and talk to them, man. I, I have a lot of things on my mind that I feel like a lot of people might resonate with, and you know, I want to see a lot of change, and I hope anyone listening kind of agrees with that and is on board with what I'm saying that they'd like to see a change too. Um, and like I said, I want the next generation to reach the potential that even I, I myself like will not be able to reach, you know, there is mm-hmm. an, and there is an end date. It's an inevitable where I'll have to tap out. I'm 30. I don't want to be doing this when I'm 40 years old, you know, and I'd love to see. Is it Diplo see- like 40? See, I use always, I always use that example. I don't want to be 40 playing in Vegas or anything like that. I'm, I'm trying to settle down and like not not do that at that age. I'd love to be a producer like behind the scenes and work on music, but I don't want to be touring. I want to see the next generation really take it to where I I was in, unable to. And I'd like to be a, a part of that like process of being either a mentor or just like helping as much as I can and trying to open doors for them as much as possible, you know? Um, and yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you.